Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Obviously, the biggest deal this week for anyone paying attention to the world of M&A is Microsoft buying LinkedIn, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But also, a Bloomberg exclusive broke earlier this week, talks between the two biggest fantasy sports sites, daily fantasy sports sites, that is, DraftKings and FanDuel. These two companies potentially coming together. We'll discuss that with Bloomberg sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams later this show. But first, it's time for What's the Big Deal? And of course, it's Microsoft's $26.2 billion takeover for LinkedIn, one of the biggest tech deals of all time. And joining us now in studio is Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Shira Oviday, who focuses her columns on technology. Hi, Shira. Very glad to be here, Alex. I'm glad you are here uh, to talk about a deal that you know, had been rumored a little bit and, and certainly was on my radar. And in fact, what happened, so this was Monday, was that I was here and, and Microsoft shares halted. And I was staring at my Bloomberg terminal at like 827, thinking to myself, uh-oh, I think they're going to buy LinkedIn uh, because I knew they weren't going to buy Salesforce because I had the sourcing enough for that. But my Microsoft sources had stopped calling me recently, and when sales were halted, it was just sort of a sinking feeling of like, ah, I should have pressed on this harder. And then when it hit, I, I was like, ah, I, uh. I, I had a feeling this was going to happen. But look, $26 billion is a lot of money. So why, in your opinion, does Microsoft want LinkedIn for this price? Well, it was interesting to hear them talk about the deal. Basically, it feels like Microsoft wants to make sure that it can keep its workplace franchises like Office, like Outlook, like Dynamics, which is a tool that's used by uh, salespeople, much like Salesforce.com. Microsoft wants to make sure that those software franchises are relevant for the next generation of people at work. And it thinks that LinkedIn and making ways for LinkedIn and those Microsoft tools to integrate together that those things will be more valuable to professional workers like you and me together rather than apart. So let's let's talk a little bit about like what LinkedIn is really. It's really more of a business-to-business business service than sort of a consumer service, right? Right. I mean, it's sort of funny to see, especially yesterday, LinkedIn kind of lumped in with other advertising-focused social networks like Twitter. LinkedIn and Twitter are not really in the same business. Two-thirds of LinkedIn's revenue comes from selling technology to businesses, people like recruiters who use LinkedIn to find job candidates, right? And companies that are using LinkedIn to find potential workers. It's not really a, you know, selling Facebook ads to people who are Right. So so in some ways it's it's you could look at it as closer to like a workday or a Salesforce in in essence where you're selling to companies HR departments. That's right. Uh, and and so uh, has Microsoft given any idea yet about how they plan on integrating LinkedIn with its, say, its software packages? It was notable to me the way they talked about integration yesterday. Sachin Adela, the CEO of Microsoft, in a memo to employees, he basically said that he's going to let LinkedIn management decide where to integrate LinkedIn tightly with other Microsoft software and where to sort of leave it somewhat separate, which is sort of interesting to give that power to the company that you're acquiring rather than make that decision on Microsoft. Yeah, I wonder if that is uh, sort of a nod to employees that work there that sort of say like, hey, look, you know, you might see us as big, bad Microsoft that's going to mess up your company, but rest assured, you guys are going to have independence. However, the question then is, 
Is that just talk at the beginning to sort of make sure that people don't complain until this deal closes and then yeah. all of a sudden things will I change? I mean, you know this better than I do, Alex, right? That every company that buys another company says, well, we're not going to ruin it. We're going to let it have its own independent flavor. And it almost never is true. Right? You never. buy something and then you want to make it your own. You want to mesh it in with everything else you own. You want to run it like you run the rest of the rest of your company. So we'll see if Microsoft really holds to that. Even pushing on that, Shira, I would argue that that's what you should be doing if you buy a company. I mean, yeah. you don't want to mess it up per se, but, you, but the point of paying a 50% premium for something yeah. is that you feel like you can do something with this company wrapped up in your own company that it can't do independently. That's right. So if you're Microsoft, the idea would be you want to integrate LinkedIn to some degree with your software packages. And and, and from what I gather, the part of the idea here is that LinkedIn has only been able to get so much penetration, say, selling to small and medium-sized businesses. But of course, Microsoft, through many of its different software packages, has a long history with small and medium-sized businesses. So potentially, you can use Microsoft Salesforce to, to sell LinkedIn as is and then maybe offer it through other Microsoft services uh, where people are suddenly paying for LinkedIn that haven't been paying for for businesses, that is, not yeah, people. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's clear that LinkedIn got a little bit stuck selling its software to HR departments and recruiters at much larger companies. And that's an area where Microsoft, at least in theory, can help because it does sell software to the biggest companies in the world. Part of this, I think, is the, the data also that comes with LinkedIn. So I think what LinkedIn doesn't want to turn into is like a monster.com where right. you where it's simply used as like, a, you know, here are the jobs job that board. are the job board. Yeah. Exactly. But if you can use LinkedIn's data about, uh, you know, for, for different recruiting uh, uh, tools and other tools uh, about sort of uh, professional networking, uh, then there's a lot of potential information there that I'm sure Microsoft uh, will find useful to sort of be able to sell its own products to certain things and also network within the Microsoft ecosystem. Because remember, you know, Microsoft also owns things like Outlook. Mm -hmm. They have Bing. You know, they have things that are more sort of social. That they're they're not just a generic software company. That so 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 there there is a social aspect I think to. LinkedIn that does fit in a little bit with some of the things that Microsoft does. Yeah, although I have to say, all this sounds good in theory, but Microsoft is terrible at acquisitions. I, I can't even say, I don't have the language to say how terrible they are. Basically, they buy things and ruin them. I was struck yesterday by how similar Microsoft's rationale for the LinkedIn deal was to their rationale for buying Yammer, which was this kind of workplace chat tool they bought for a billion dollars, a billion two dollars in 2012. And they also integrated Yammer functions inside of Office and Outlook. And I think it's regarded now that Yammer basically got mashed inside of Microsoft. And there are other technologies like Slack that kind of overtook Yammer as the workplace chat tool. So let's stay on this one. So Microsoft bought Nokia for more than $7 billion or so to try to get into the phone business more. That acquisition was a complete disaster. Terrible. They bought Skype for about $8.5 billion. That acquisition, too, has not paid off not good. for them. They tried to buy Yahoo for $45 billion. <laughs> yep. And Yahoo is currently selling its core internet business for, let's say, between three and four billion dollars. Yeah. So that was a huge disaster averted for Microsoft, not by its own making, really. Just not by Yahoo its own botched making, it. Chance, and, yep. exactly. 
what am I forgetting? Are there other ones besides Yammer that come to mind? Here I that think Microsoft those has? are the those are all big or big potential. Those are deals. the biggest ones they've done. Correct. However, there is a new CEO at Microsoft, so you know it's not totally fair to compare old Microsoft potentially to new Microsoft. A lot of the same people are there, but a lot of people are not there. And in fact, Satya Nadella, I know, was very critical of the Nokia acquisition at the time that it was done. Satya Nadella's background is in cloud software. He was he sort of the head of Microsoft Cloud yep. before he became CEO. So theoretically, he should have a good idea about LinkedIn, maybe more than some other potential acquisitions, say like a consumer product right. uh, that Microsoft would buy. So I think there's a chance that maybe this is a new Microsoft, but yeah, $26 billion is a lot of money to pay. It's a lot of money. And obviously that amps up the risk, right? So, okay, if you don't do a good job integrating Yammer at a billion dollars, maybe not a big deal for a company the size of Microsoft. If you don't do well integrating a $26 billion strategic deal, that's going to be a big problem. All right, so let's turn to what this means for maybe more tech deals down the road. Do you feel like this could potentially be a trigger for other large deals, let's say, later this year or early next year? I think it'll be interesting to see. It's it's hard to imagine that other companies might kind of look at the LinkedIn, the Microsoft LinkedIn deal, and think, we need to buy our own social network or professional social network or something. There's not that many of those assets around. To me, the interesting thing is more the psychology on the, the target side or the potential target side, right? We've seen quite a number of deals in the software industry, business software companies, really in the last six weeks, two months. And it feels like a number of them got kicked in the teeth in the public markets since the end of last year. There was a big correction in high-value software companies. And they may have just changed the psychology for those companies. They're much, maybe much more receptive to selling now than they were, at certainly at this point, last year. Right. So Demandware sold. A company called Marketo right. sold. Uh, and there have been both strategic buyers and private equity buyers. And look, we, we know, actually, that... Goldman Sachs was working with another bidder on LinkedIn, which I'm still in the process of trying to be able to name. Uh, but And I'm not saying this is the company yet because we, we don't know it. But I will say that Salesforce CEO, which has an outstanding relationship with Goldman Sachs, uh, Mark Benioff, publicly said, we were looking at other acquisitions. We've been looking at other acquisitions, and we've failed. Right. We were outbid. And so he was very happy to buy Demandware uh, because they didn't get outbid. So your point is that the, there, there, there do seem to be a lot of uh, these sort of software-as-a-service type companies right now that are in the market, that are looking at their peers, that saying these deals are happening. Clearly, the bid-ask spread because of what you talked about, where these companies fell off a cliff in, in uh, late January, early February. That bid-ask spread has come much closer together now. Uh, and it's evidenced by the LinkedIn deal where Microsoft can pay a 50% premium uh, for a company and yet still actually underpay where that company was trading in, let's say, December or January. Uh, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Shira Ovide, who focuses on technology, thank you for joining us, Shira. Thank you. My pleasure. want to bring in Bloomberg sports reporter Evan Novi Williams now to talk about fantasy sports, specifically daily fantasy sports, because the two biggest companies in the world of daily fantasy, FanDuel and DraftKings, are in talks to merge. This was a Bloomberg exclusive scoop this week. Hi, Evan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, so let's start at the uh, base level here for people that aren't as familiar with this world. Uh, what are daily fantasy sports? And so daily fantasy is a spinoff of the traditional season-long fantasy model, uh, a way in which users can enter, pay money to enter contests that happen on a daily basis. And similar to your season-long league, you're compiling a team based of real players, and you, you do well or poorly depending on how well or poorly those players do in, in real life. And these particular sites have gotten into some legal trouble, right, because of the the blurred line between whether or not this is gambling? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. In, in, in the first three years of their existence, they rose from virtual no-name companies to unicorns, billion-dollar startups, both of them. Um, and then, as you said, the legal storm hit them in the past year or so. Uh, and New York is a perfect example. Attorney General Eric Schneiderman has been pretty vocal in his, in his fears about consumer protection regarding the legality of these games. And it tossed the entire industry uh, into question. And as we talk about the potential merger, obviously that's something that's weighing on both these companies and probably a large driving force behind the idea of the two of them getting together. You know, it's it's funny because it, what, what has happened here is people have played fantasy sports for decades and on the side bet money on them. But it's never been organized where the companies themselves are the ones that sort of directly organize the quote-unquote gambling involved here. And then, what, do these sites take a cut of the money? Is that how it yeah, works? Yeah, they take a cut, not not unlike Vegas. There's a rake, essentially. Um, it, it's, good, it's obviously good business good business for them. But but you're right, there's not nothing all that different than what, what people have been doing in the fantasy world for, for decades, really. The problem, or, or the mistake, I guess, rather, that they made is that they put this advertising blitz together. You couldn't avoid these ads both of these companies were spending $20 million a week on ads at the beginning of the NFL season last year. And and people, lawmakers that didn't really know this world existed at all, suddenly couldn't avoid it. And, and they started asking questions that had never really been asked of this industry before. And the answers they got back were disconcerting. To put that, that number in context, there was a time during the beginning of the NFL season where I remember looking at total ad spend for all companies, any company in existence. And these companies were outspending every single other company out there. Yeah, you'd look at the list would be DraftKings and then AT&T and then Disney. Yeah. Just huge spenders across $200 billion companies. Exactly. And and, and if you think about it, a lot of those companies like AT&T and and Disney, they're advertising across all different types of programming. This was just advertising really across sports programming. So if you were a sports fan, you it was every single commercial Bombarded. Break. Yeah, sometimes even two in a single break. Uh, and when you cast that big of a light on your own industry, sometimes people that, that you don't know uh, are looking suddenly uh, suddenly wake up to it. So one of the interesting things about this, uh, it's funny, so, so your colleague Scott Soshnick and I broke this story uh, earlier this week, and I immediately did a television interview afterward and was asked about the potential antitrust concerns here. And... I said that, I said, well, I said there might be some, but I think it depends on whether or not you look at fantasy sports, daily fantasy sports as its own market or just sort of part of the larger world of online gaming, fantasy sports, etc. And I was a little dismissive of the antitrust concerns. Since then, I have read a number of other people that say that they actually don't think this deal will happen because because you go from these two big companies in this one industry to one. So I'm I am now very curious about how regulators would look at a deal like this, or even if the potential uh, idea that a deal wouldn't happen will actually stop these two companies from coming together. Absolutely. It's a good question. And it, uh, I'm not an antitrust lawyer either, Nor am but, I. but I would understand. I, I assume that it's just a matter of how you define the industry. 
and whether if, if being a, a a giant, the only real company in the daily fantasy space uh, is how they define that industry, then yeah, I could certainly see antitrust concerns. But I will tell you, in talking to smaller operators in the daily fantasy space, they already feel as though there's a monopoly. Even though these two companies aren't working together, obviously, the barrier to entry in this business is so, so incredibly high. I mean, these guys are 90% of the, maybe even more at this point, 90% of the money that, that your average daily fantasy player plays is going to one of these two sites. And one of the reasons why they want to do this merger, obviously, is to keep that barrier to entry. We can make it even higher. Uh, so whether there are antitrust concerns or not from a legal standpoint, there are massive concerns within the industry about that exact topic. So then the question becomes, how profitable are these companies on their own? In other words, when you do have a merger with two dominant companies, it's because, and that merger goes through, historically it's because you're in an industry where the two would more or less fail. I'm thinking like Sirius and XM Radio, mm -hmm, for instance, mm -hmm. which both companies were on the verge of going bankrupt, and they brought them together, and now, yeah, there was a, again, how do you define that market? Is is satellite radio different than general radio? They decided that part of the reason they let this go through is that they thought the companies would go bankrupt on their own, so in other words, put them together. In this industry, uh, from my understanding, that's not really the case. These companies, I've been told, would be profitable instantly if they stopped advertising. Now, that's a big if, right? Because you need to keep advertising in order to keep getting people to sign up for the site. So, uh, you know, do you have any more insight into sort of how good of a business this is? Yeah, this is the big question mark surrounding the whole industry. When you take out even the legal concerns, uh, the, as you say, the, the method, message coming out of both these companies has always been, we can be profitable right now. We can flip a switch. And the major question, as you said, is whether if you're not spending $20 million on advertising per week, if you're just losing out on the customer acquisition. And this is an answer that we don't have, I think, just because these companies are A, so young, and B, they, in their history, they've either been unknown, spending millions per week on advertising, or fighting all these legal battles. There's really never been a normal period of uh, of normalcy within within the, the lifespan of either of these companies. But yeah, the question is whether if you're not advertising, does the churn catch up to you? And these companies cannot live if all they have are these shark players. They need people that don't know any better, essentially, to keep trying and signing up for the site and playing. And if you cut off the advertising stream and you have average people that are like, you know what? I'm just losing money. Like I'm, This is a losing proposition for me. I'm going to get out. Like they Vegas. Need to exactly, exactly. They need to replace those players because they're not going to be profitable if you have a bunch of sharks sitting around playing daily fantasy against each other. It just doesn't work that way as a model. Which reminds me, there was a story last year, and you'll have to remind me to fill in the details here, about uh, employees from these companies right, playing on each other's sites and sort of not disclosing that they were like professionals. Yeah, at this. the, the I guess the first chink in the armor for for both of these companies was an insider trading accusation, essentially saying that if, if you think of both the companies as having similar user bases, you can assume that the the players that are getting chosen are similar on both sites. So the accusation was that an employee at DraftKings was using the internal DraftKings data and using that to play on FanDuel. Uh, which amazingly, if you looked at the employee handbook and user agreements for both companies, they didn't out outlaw that, which, I mean, red flag right there if I'm an investor. And yeah, there was the companies denied it, and they said the timing didn't really match up in terms of whether he used the inside information or not. But in the court of public opinion, the die was pretty much cast. I mean, people automatically assume that there was maybe some shady business going on. And that's kind of fueled, going back to what we were talking about before, there, I think there's a distrust in the industry. I mean, from a lot of your standard players. 
And the question is whether once once it becomes legal, which I think it will in some way, I think they'll settle into some kind of regulatory framework that makes this possible for most people in the United States to participate in. The question is whether your average sports fan trusts these companies or, or single company if they emerge enough to really dive back in the way they were about a year ago. I mean, that's a it's a really good point, and it seems to me to be a red flag on whether or not a merger would be ultimately okayed because if you have distrust of two companies, putting the companies together and making them <laughs> one, I mean, that, that historically only breeds more distrust. If you think about any sort of deal, if, if you have a near monopoly to begin with and you're going to put the two together... Uh, you know, you're just consolidating power. There. Absolutely. I would love to see some kind of approval numbers or, or trust rating uh, for the daily fantasy industry right now. I would imagine that it's not particularly high. Do you play fan- daily fantasy sports? I've played a few times, but I'm one of these people. I got churned out, essentially. I'm one of these people that played a little bit, realized very quickly that I'm going to lose money. Ironically enough, a high school buddy of mine is the most successful DFS player in the world right now. And, and how is that known or ranked? They have Roto Grinders is one of these big sites, and they have your like point ranking. Um, and he's head and shoulders above everybody else. But I've talked to him about his methods, and I mean, once you learn what these guys are doing, just re- br- briefly, what is he doing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's everything from looking at the weather, looking at advanced statistics that I don't even think of, wouldn't even know exist, you know. And this isn't, I mean, it's it is about obviously how well players are going to perform, but it's really more about finding value within those players. So if one guy's going to do half of what the other guy is going to do, but he's going to do it at a quarter of the cost, that's the investment you make, you know? So these guys think on a level that is well beyond what I was thinking of. And I realized, I mean, I played for about a week, lost a little bit of money, realized I'm never going to make money in this, and I'm out. I'm never going to go back. And there's a lot of people like me out there. And for every one of me that happens, they need to get a new me, essentially, to come in and, and put up the money that I was putting up. And and that's the concern about the kind of the future of the industry. But yeah, it's a at the top level. I mean, you'd be amazed at how how much plan. I mean, this these guys work. I mean, it's their it's their job. Your friends, yeah. this is profession. Yeah, yeah, it's his profession. Yeah, and I mean, they they work eight nine hours a day. And, that, <laughs> and what does he make? Million dollars? Oh, more than that. Yeah, I mean, it was on pace. I haven't checked in since uh, since uh, a lot of the, the legal issues were going on. But yeah, if you're a, if you're the high high level of DFS player, yeah, you're you're pulling in well more than seven figures a year. And he plays on these sites? Yeah, on these two sites. And that's the other thing. I mean, we talk about the merger as if these these companies are not going to gain a huge customer base if they merge. Because they're already... Exactly. This probably Cannibalism is probably 80% already. I, I know very few people that play on one but not on the so other. So really it would just be the decreased ads wars. That yeah, so the decreased spending is huge. Decreased cost on, on staff is big. And the other major cost, which they don't really put out there in terms of dollars, but... They're spending so much money on lobbying right now and legal fees. And the the lawsuits are virtually identical. If you read what Schneiderman kind of sent to both companies, it's essentially like a cut and paste job, cutting out DraftKings and putting in FanDuel in terms of the document. But they're also, they're spending for lobbyists that each of these companies have their own lobbyists in dozens of states around the country. So uh, why not merge and spend more money on lobbying? Just change your focus. There you go. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's the play. Right. Yeah. I mean, the other big question is whether these companies are in the same boat financially. And from what I understand, they're, they're not. I mean, they've taken very different strategies in terms of how they wanted to combat a lot of this legal framework. DraftKings has spent a lot of money moving overseas in a way that FanDuel did not do. And from what I understand, I think FanDuel might be in a little bit of a better position financially. And I'm sure these are things that when you get into merger talks are discussions about what, what the percentages are and how they break down uh, in that way. Very interesting. Uh, Bloomberg Sports reporter, even Novi Williams, talking about daily fantasy 
sports uh, and an insight into this potential merger between the two biggest companies in the industry, FanDuel and DraftKings. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this week's episode. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. And until then, please find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And also, please take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. We are really interested to hear what you have to think about what we're doing, or if you have any guest ideas or topics for us to cover, please let us know. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Shira is at Shira Ovide, spelled O-V-I-D-E, and even is at Novi underscore Williams. That's N-O-V-Y underscore Williams. See you next week.